Welcome to the Angus Conversation. I'm your host, Miranda Ryman, with my co-host, CEO of the American Angus Association, Mark McCulley. Hello, Miranda. We have been enjoying the Sunshine State down here in Orlando at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association Cattle Industry Convention. And we're here in the trade show, and it is bustling. There are a lot of folks here. Yeah, there's been a, all kinds of people stopping by with questions either on programs or breeders here talking about tools that we have. I think it's been good. You know, we joke we don't want to see too many conversations, but good conversations yeah. about um, anything from ways to be involved in Angus to um, maybe if they want to be involved in the Certified Angus Beef Program more. And Yeah, we really have all the entities represented here, and uh, uh, we've got, you know, members and breeders that show up and kind of uh, this is a bit of a home base maybe for them, and then we've got commercial folks that have come in, and uh, we've talked to some new producers that are uh, uh, in the decision process of what they're going to do in their program around genetics and marketing, and so you're right, it's just a, a great place to have a lot of really, really uh, 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 get to meet up with a lot of folks and have a lot of great conversations. <laughs> Um, we are going to totally change gears, I would say, today in our programming in that we usually have breeders on or we have folks kind of intimately involved in the, the cow-calf sector of the business. But today we're going to switch gears to the, the cattle feeders. And I will say last night at the bar, I mentioned to somebody that cattle feeders are some of my favorite people. And somebody went, are they? But I think that this this episode will prove why. Yeah, we, we had a couple... Uh, a couple guys that I have a ton of respect for, uh, Dr. Key Jim, uh, who is tonight being inducted into the Cattle Feeders Hall of Fame, and we get to got to talk to him a little about that, and Mike Thorne, who's the CEO of uh, Five Rivers Cattle Feeding. So between those two guys, uh, they uh, they influence an awful lot of uh, of cattle uh, in the in the in the in the feeding industry, but but maybe more importantly, uh, as it relates to scale, their their insight into the industry, uh, they've uh, they've seen it from a lot of different. Uh, places. They're very, very innovative thinkers. They're, uh, they're influencers. So uh, we got to pick their brain of where we uh, think the seed stock industry ought to be thinking to prepare for where the feeding industry will likely be five and 10 years down the road. You know, it's probably cliche to say we talked about challenges and opportunities. That's probably true in every podcast that we do. But I, I do think that they challenged maybe some conventional wisdom that's out there and also gave us a roadmap of some places that breeders as those kind of genetic engineers of the next kind of cattle that will be coming through the feed yard places that maybe we can make some change in the business absolutely you know i, I think about our long-range objectives that center one is increased the profitability of the commercial producer and and the cattle feeder is obviously a big part of that and so i think listening very intently uh, uh sometimes it's not always what we want to hear right and and uh, but we need to hear what they're seeing what they're experiencing whether that's the cow calf producer whether that's the cattle feeder, and how do we get better. And uh, I think they gave us some good insight into areas where, as a breed, uh, we're doing a good job, and maybe some areas we can get better. So let's give it a listen, and then let us know what you think. Well, we're here at NCBA convention and have two guests that are, I would say, kind of giants in the feeding industry. Very much so. Leaders in the feeding industry. So we have Key Jim sitting across from me and he is going to be an inductee in the Cattle Feeders Hall of Fame this evening so it'll be fun to celebrate him later but um, he grew up in British Columbia on a ranch and have a lot of experience went to vet school and then after veterinary school um, founding partner in feedlot health management services and We'll be excited to have you tell us more of your story. So thanks for joining us today, Keith. Yep, thank you. Glad to be here. And congratulations. That's an incredible honor. 
Yeah. Thank you. Looking forward to really good stories tonight at the banquet, too. <laughs> That's yes. Right. And Mike Thorne is here on my other side, uh, president and CEO of Five Rivers, Bachelor in Ag Business and Master's in Ag Econ from Washington State University. Began on the continental grain side of things and kind of worked your way up through the company that now, if I have the facts right, 13 feed yards and market 1.8 million head annually from kind of Texas to Idaho. Yeah, that'd be about right. Excellent. Good. <laughs> So this is this is yeah. the first time, uh, Miranda. We've had uh, we really been talking about the cattle feeding industry, and what I mean, you, you two guys, you, you said giants. Truly, you guys, between the two of you, I know um, represent millions of, of cattle every year, and so I think it's just an incredible opportunity to for you guys. And we appreciate you coming on and, and sharing. You guys have both. We've we've had you. Uh, you've you've helped us in various roles. Uh, uh, visited with our board of directors, given uh, help our board give insight, and so this is really cascading that out to some of our breeders and listeners to get into. The minds of, of uh, two of the the giants in the cattle feeding industry, and so thanks for thanks for being with us. Thank you for having us. So let's just start right at the beginning. Key, maybe you want to start and just tell me a little bit of your story. So you grew up on a ranch. Um, did six- you can leave the Hereford breeder part out? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I grew up on a small ranch in the interior of BC, in a you know pretty small, pretty small town. You know, fifty people or so. And as I like to say, small, far enough out in the Thule's that if you wanted a cat, you had to actually have your own Tomcat. (laughs) So so far far enough away. So, you know, the nearest feedlot was probably 800 miles from where I grew up, right? So really didn't start off with the connection with cattle feeding, Mm -hmm. uh, but was fortunate enough to get off the ranch and go to veterinary school and graduated in 1983, uh, started a feedlot uh, consulting business and that grew significantly over the years but probably more importantly it it gave me a great insight into cattle feeding and in western Canada the business really started to take off in the late 70s and the mid 80s so right place right right place right time I mean that's that's critical for success and by being involved and, and getting involved in you know buying of cattle and custom feeding cattle, it was a, probably the best time in history in North America to be doing that. And from the mid '80s uh, till uh, you know up until even as late as 2000, I mean we made nothing but money, right? <laughs> it was you know 30, 40 percent return on investment. I just kept buying you know more and more and more cattle. And that's how I, you know, got started in cattle feeding, and you know, allowed me to, <clears throat> to grow, you know, GK Jim Farms from very small beginning into a significant cattle feeder here in North America. Uh, currently involved in feedlots in Texas and Colorado, uh, New Mexico, and we're currently building a, a large lot in Nebraska. So, been very fortunate and blessed to be part of the growth of a, of an industry. Uh, from you know from the beginning, and uh, feel pretty lucky to be here today. Mm-hmm. And you've done some international work uh, in your consulting business as well. Yes, correct. Uh, the company has has provided services in virtually every beef producing country uh, in the world, from you know Brazil, Argentina, Russia, China, Kazakhstan, uh, Mongolia, South Africa, right where there's been you know either feedlot projects or some type of beef projects and. You know, the consulting business has really given me a window of opportunity to observe, you know, production under a variety of different geographies, circumstances, 
uh, political systems, right? But it's been a very powerful learning tool for me over the years. So if you ever filled out one of those, what I want to be when I grow up back in elementary school, was this on the list? Uh, not in my wildest dreams. <laughs> not at all. Uh, when you went to veterinary school, what was, I mean, you were going to be a, a general practice veterinarian or what was your main goal there? Uh, no, I, I never went into it. I was very young when I got into veterinary college, right? So I skipped a few grades in high school and I landed up at veterinary college when I was 17 years old. Right, so I don't think you know a whole lot uh, back then, and I was never, you know, convinced that you know, like a lot of veterinarians from birth wanted to be a veterinarian. I wasn't one of those people, but I figured out about midway through veterinary school that mm, not sure that I want to be a you know a large animal practitioner. Is there something else in the field? And I got connected. Uh, with a fellow named Eugene Jansen, who was a professor that was connected with the feedlot business and really stimulated my interest in the feedlot. And about mid-vet school, I thought, that's what I want to do, right? I want to work in, in the feedlot industry, and I see a big opportunity to specialize. You know, this goes back a long time, 40 years ago, right? And, and you know, just to be, you know, a feedlot-only veterinarian, and bring data collection tools. I was very interested in computers, and <clears throat> I was one of the first people to put computers shoot side for a collection of data at, at feedlots. You got a little glimpse into the intellect of Dr. Kijim. I skipped a couple <laughs> grades and went to vet school. I, not <laughs> I, a lot of people say that. I didn't that. <laughs> start out by saying that when I mentioned to someone earlier that we were going to be interviewing Kijim, they said he's the smartest person I've ever met. So it's kind of intimidating. Well, I they, will say. That person hasn't met very many people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, Mike, when I went to search the internet for some of your background, there wasn't a whole lot on it. So either you've had it expunged or I'm not real <laughs> Expunged. Sure. I mean, the time <laughs> I spent away from society. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's <laughs> off the record. But no. But no um, so it's, it's funny. Key and I didn't grow up very far apart, actually. I grew up right on the Canadian border in Washington State. Um, and stuff and so in a very diversified uh, agricultural situation my dad was an ag lender my grandparents on both sides were farmers ranchers and stuff and so I always had a lot of exposure uh, you know and wheat and cattle type deals and stuff and then through school I lived in an orchard area so I spent a lot of time in apple orchards and stuff and working um, through that and then hay and I always liked horses and cattle and stuff was around my uncle was a head cowboy on a grow yard essentially a grow yard situation sometimes we go help process cattle and stuff was kind of my first chance on a feed yard and it always kind of hit with me just resonated the things as, as you indicated I have a degree in agribusiness and ag econ so when I started I thought I wanted to be on the trade side and today that's really the least <laughs> favorite part of my job I really like the production and the people and stuff and I've learned a lot about the science and stuff in that and it's just been a fabulous business for me a fabulous industry and opportunities to learn and grow and be around great people and learn from people like key and stuff it's just it's been an exciting time so and, and mike you really you came into continental grain at the time and and truly worked your way all the way to the top through multiple transitions and yeah. evolutions of that company yeah so in 1991 i my wife and i moved from washington state to the 
Texas and Oklahoma Panhandle. I worked in the Texas Panhandle and we lived in the, or worked in the Oklahoma Panhandle, lived in the Texas Panhandle, and lived in a double wide by the rail tra- road tracks where you could hear the grain uh, dryers running all and night. And you were newlyweds at the we time? We were newlyweds. It was really a blessed time. We got along great. One day she was ready to move home to mom and she was packing her bags and I was like, hey, don't take all the space. I'm going with you. <laughs> Let's talk about this. But no, we tapped it out, sucked it up, and learned so much and made so many great friends along the way. And to the point, and, and our, our management training program is still largely structured that way. You earn while you learn. And so first day in is driving food truck, get horseback, do these things and stuff, and, and really work hard through those deals and learn the production system and stuff. And that was a place where I excelled was just being able to do those things and being hands-on. I always... It's funny, my oldest son's a Marine and an uh, officer, and I'm always like, man, why would you want to do that? But when I think about my early days in the feed yard, the excitement, <laughs> we do more exciting stuff before noon at a feed yard than the rest of society gets to do all month. So that's kind of the deal. I love that. Maybe real quick for those not familiar, so Conti Beef to Five Rivers, and you had some ownership change, so maybe explain a little of that structure today. Yeah, so Continental Grain uh, started in the cattle feeding business in the middle 70s in Dalhart, Texas, and acquired yards and built a very successful business. Um, and then in about uh, 2003, or I had transitioned to CEO right before the mad cow i'd been ceo for three months before we had the mad <laughs> like easing into yeah, it welcome yeah. to the big leagues but no that was an interesting time we have fortunate we had some excellent uh risk managers and analysts and stuff that really did a tommy beal did a fantastic job of just determining where real demand would be and what the real market market implications of a closure would be and stuff and so we fared pretty well actually but it was scary for a day or two uh, or a week or two. Uh, He's I think, his he, head. I think yeah. he had some real interesting times through those two, but we, we got through them. But um, sh- uh, I'd say in 2005, I think it was, uh, Smithfield acquired what had been the ConAgra feed yards and was looking for a merger with Continental Grain. And so we merged those companies to become Five Rivers at that point. And we ran in that. 50-50 joint venture of Continental Grain, Smithfield, um, as Five Rivers, till about 2009, if my memory serves me correct. And then JBS bought the company, and so we worked as JBS Five Rivers for essentially the next 10 years. And then um, in t- uh, 2018, uh, we were spun out at JBS and, and became Five Rivers Standalone today, held by Pinnacle Arcadia. Excellent. So it's it's been interesting, di- different equity structures and stuff all the way along. But it's it's been a lear- each step has been a learning ex- opportunity. So yeah. <laughs> Le- Mike, you survived more regime changes than your average third world country. <laughs> <laughs> I like how he calls them learning opportunities. Yeah. I think. Just keep your head down, Keith. <laughs> yeah. And Keith, uh, Feedlot Health has changed a little in structure here over in yes. tell us. Yeah, it it has. So. Uh, I was the principal owner of the business for 37 years, and roughly three years ago, uh, the company was purchased in its entirety uh, by Telus Agriculture. And and Telus Agriculture is a part of a much larger telecom company in Canada, Telus, right? Quite a quite a 
a, a large company, $18 billion top line kind of a con company. They have a market cap of about $35 billion. But they've got interested in agriculture and they want to make a, you know, a business of consequence out of their, out of their agricultural acquisitions. And they've acquired, I think, about 15 or 16 companies. A, a similar theme to, you know, to Feedlot Health, but in across the entire, you know, food chain. They're in the agronomy. They're in post-processing uh, consumer goods. All, you know, all of that, all of that sort of thing. And you know, it's been a interesting transition. All of the partners that uh, formerly worked for Feedlot Health are still with Telus Agriculture today. Uh, you know, including myself, so they didn't quite get rid of all the dead wood by, <laughs> by, buying, by buying the company. And it's been a, another adventure right along the way to become part of a, you know, as Mike, you know, has had many transitions, right? This is a pretty significant transition for, you know, for the company, but so far things have gone very well and we're pretty excited about the global opportunities going forward that, you know, being involved with an entity like Telus can bring. What, what of TELUS, when they looked at Feedlot Health, what, what do you think was most appealing uh, to uh, to your business, to what they're trying to do? I, I think the most appealing thing was that we had developed a considerable bit of software uh, in, you know, in and around Feedlot production. So they were, you know, buying a, an established data analytics company, right, science-based, research-based right and wanted to use that type of platform to get involved in you know other species including agri aquaculture dairy pork poultry you know so it was really the the the, the overarching uh, data platform and and methodologies that they were buying and the people i mean we have 55 uh, either dvms phds epidemiologists statisticians i think we have i think it's safe to say with the largest collection of of beef cattle professionals, even greater than the, you know, faculty of a lot of universities, right? So you know, it's the people and the tools that they were acquiring. Intellect surrounded by intellect is what yeah. I'm hearing, right? Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about how your guys' businesses have changed, but bring me back if somebody were dropped in a feed yard in 1983 or 1991, how would they know that they'd went back in time? What's different in the feed yard today? Well, I, I, ironically, <laughs> I've been, over the 40 years that you know that I've been involved in in feedlot production, the, the core, you know, the core elements of what of what's been done, you know, I wouldn't say has been has transformed dramatically. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, cattle are or feedlots, still be pen riders. Yeah, feedlots, <laughs> uh, you know, are pens that hold cattle, and, right. and you have to deliver feed to. But in saying that. The technologies that we employ, have, you know, and the tools that we employ, have, you know, have changed dramatically. And then the central theme in all of this has been, got to get to scale, right? You've got to get your production facilities of an appropriate size that you can dilute, you can dilute overhead, right? And that, you know, when I first started, I mean, the first feedlot I worked for as a consultant had just built a new feedlot and it was 10,000 head. Mm -hmm. And I thought, man, that's that's a big one. That's, you know, feedlots probably aren't gonna get any bigger than that, you know, mm -hmm. how it is. And 
And today, we like feedlots of 150,000 head in terms of you know the, the economies of scale. So really two things, size and technology, and I'm sure Mike can elaborate on that. Theme. Yeah, I, I would agree on those points, and I'd take it, you know, I think about this often, because I started in the fall of the year 1991, and I can remember clear as a bell, we had one pan of straight black calves in a 48,000 head feed yard. A neighbor sold us their calf <laughs> crop, and so they were really pin markers and stuff. We had tiger stripes and everything you can imagine, soup to nuts mm -hmm. for cattle type, but we had one pin of black calves, and I always paid a lot of attention to them. And today, if you go in that same feed yard, you know, in the fall of the year, it's going to be 85, 90% black hydrogen. And a lot of them truly are Angus cattle and, and good Angus genetics. So, I mean, the impact you guys have had on the industry has been profound that way. And I think a lot of the demand benefit that we've enjoyed over that time is a direct result of just better eating experience and, and better cattle too, in, in, in an essence. So that's that's been real. I think, you know, Key alluded to scale. When I think about um, things, I, I was fortunate to go to work for Continental Grain. They, they understood the scale deal early on. So we were 50, 60,000 head yards in and have expanded them um, some from that, but always had yards of scale, or typically did. And so always experienced that. But I think within the feed yard, just the size of the equipment and stuff, you know, and things mm -hmm. like, just little things like the office, you know, and technology in office. Office, feed yard offices used to have four or five people in, in there with big green chain printers and mm -hmm. green bar paper and a lot of work and stuff you know feed cards we used to have to add you know calling feed was a race all day long because you had ribbon printed cards and get them down print them run them on the 10 key as fast as you can to figure out what the next call is going to be and so it was that time where we had some systems but it was still not very man operated and then you know just bigger feed trucks and fewer drivers and those types of things i think key you know, Key's point on other technologies and, and um, you know, just computers and the, the uh, shoot side computers and stuff that came, you know, and the amount of technology in a feed truck today is a lot compared to where we were. So that's been very interesting. It reminded me, and I think, I think you've heard me say this before, Mike, you, you talk about the change in cattle type. And I remember a meeting that was, it was John Stick and myself, we met with you. This was probably been 15, 18 years ago. And, and, and you called CAB premiums pennies from heaven. And, and we went home and said, because that stung, we didn't like that. No, it, but, but it was true, it, it was true. We said, we've got to create uh, a bigger pull, right? The pull has to be bigger because you, pennies from heaven, what you meant by is you weren't changing management, you, you weren't doing anything different uh, in your behavior. It, it was gravy. And, uh, and so that became a bit of a rallying cry for us for, for years and years of we got to make it bigger than, than pennies from heaven. So thank you for that, that motivation yeah. Yeah, and, and insight because that's, uh, that's what we needed. Yeah. So. So See, I got one one right, no. <laughs> once in a row. Oh, it's, the, yeah, the blind squirrel finding the acorn. Right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Westway Feed Products Liquid Feed Supplements increase forage utilization, delivering consistent nutrition to your herd, creating efficiency and sustainability for your beef operation. To learn more or to locate a dealer near you, call 800-800-7517 or go to westwayfeed.com. How about on the animal health side, Key? Um, you know, uh, what what changes or what changes? Would, 20 years ago, did you think we would have 
been a lot further along maybe today than, than we're not. Yeah, it, you know, it's an, it's an interesting thing. And initially, uh, in, in the early 80s when I first started, the big challenge was, you know, weaning calves and bringing them directly, you know, directly into the feedlot. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly say we made a lot of progress around that particular piece, mm-hmm. right? We were able to, uh, you know, with data collection and, and, and the utilization of vaccines and antibiotics, we were able to make that process you know, from something not bearable to something that was reasonable to work with. You know, and, the, and a big part of that was, you know, prophylactic use of antimicrobials, uh, uh, temping of cattle, uh, you know, revaccination, and, you know, a series of things that were, worked out. And so, you know, we, we felt pretty good about, about going from, you know, uh, mortalities in, the, in Western Canada and, the, you know, 5 to 8% range and getting it down into the 2 and 3 and getting it down to 10% pull rates. And we, we rode along that for, you know, for many, for many years and felt that, you know, we were, we were making progress. But in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, our, our numbers have not improved much. And if anything, are probably... Uh, going you know going the other way a little bit but you have to be pretty careful in those broad generalizations about because there's many different cattle types in north america there's many different geographies and remember we are feeding cattle longer for much longer periods of time carcass weights are increasing days on feed are increasing so obviously if you if you just look at the course number you could say well things are getting far worse but you need to parse that data out and look at it much more carefully than than not. For example, if you look at our low risk population, say yearling cattle coming off of grass, those numbers have been very static, right? They're not they're not really going sideways. And if you look at say our southeastern cattle, you know, that come out of the you know, that geography, they've been problematic for 40 some years, right? So those numbers definitely haven't improved and in fact maybe go, you know, going the other way. So it just depends on on the population, and and you know the, the the challenges that we're you know that we're facing that may not be related to disease, but may be related to increased days on feed, metabolic challenges. We're cha- we're feeding cattle a lot harder than we ever did. We're using growth promoting products, uh, you know, repartitioning agents. So it's a complex thing, and it's not it's simple to say well. The disease challenges are are worse, and cattle aren't as tough as they used to be. You'll hear hear people say that. Not, I'm not sure how they would, you know, necessarily reach that reach that conclusion. And you always you always have to remember that in in the 40 years that I've been involved in it, there has not been a new cattle disease. The same pathogens have been around forever, and. To, you know, to say that there's something weird going on there, or that it's antibiotic resistance, you really can't show that, right? You really can't prove that that's or you know, you know what it is. So it is it is complex, and uh, I guess it it may it, it probably in summary means that 
veterinarians have a long-term employment program. <laughs> I, I agree with everything you said, surprisingly, Keith. The that we <laughs> that come is surprising. To, we, we brought we you guys in to not ground. agree on everything. <laughs> Unbelievable. But, but I think, you know, in that deal, and I think just absolute close-out death loss is something people yep. just have to get yep. away from because, yep. because the feeding periods are so much longer, so much more systematic stress put yep. on these cattle. You know, as I think about early in my career, really for probably the first seven or eight years, we have excellent databases and programs forever. And so you could pull data, big logs of it, and look, and our systems didn't vary at all. We fed a 740-pound in-weight steer for 133 days and made them weigh 1150 to 1160 pounds. Today, we would feed that animal, if we could buy him, we'd feed that animal 200 days and make him weigh 1,450 so that metabolic stress, the opportunities to die, every day you're in a feed yard is an opportunity <laughs> to die. And, uh, you know, and you just got to look at those. And so we don't total down on total closeout death loss as much. It's death loss by time period, you know, so mm -hmm. 30 days of occupancy and things like that to try to get uh, uh, a more relevant deal. But the amount of challenge that we put to, to hit these better palatability out endpoints has been significant on from an animal health standpoint. That has not been for free. Yeah. So, so I think the point is that, that a lot of it is non-infectious disease, right? Mm -hmm. So it's metabolic related and other things caused by extension of the of the feeding period in, in dramatically. We're not talking a few days here, we're talking months. Right, and so, so I think that's the context that we need to, and I think from a, a breed perspective and from a, you know, the cow-calf perspective, right, I think sometimes they worry that they're producing cattle that somehow are more prone to die than they were 20 years ago. I don't believe that's the case at all. But are there things that they could be doing or that we could be looking at even as an association and research and things like that that could yeah, mitigate I, some of the... Yeah, I think long-term projects that are now possible with improved genomics and tools, you know, uh, other species have been able to improve disease resistance, mm -hmm. right? And they've been able to improve survivability. You know, look at what the dairy industry has managed to do and, and you know, pigs mm -hmm. and poultry. So it should be on the radar of, of trying to, you know, get at, you know, that piece uh, ge genetically. And I think that is, it is possible, right? I think that over time, uh, you could produce cattle that are uh, more resistant to, you know, the, our biggest problem infectious-wise, which is BRD, right? It should be able to produce cattle that have, you know, better, less likely to die of BRD. Right. right over time and I think that for most of the breed associations that should be a, a high priority you're looking sure. at that and I know Angus has explored some of that uh, yeah. in the last few years yeah I, I would agree but I'll, I'm just going to call it out here I think the thing and I think Angus has a piece in this so I'm calling it out here but on on the on this morbidity deal you, you know they the infectious diseases they are what they are to Key's point we've never had a had one a new new disease pop up in the U.S. in our careers. The deal that's amazing to me is the amount of heart failures we see today, and that was a diagnosis we had way back. And when I was cutting deads, I'm not sure I could tell you what a heart failure looked like. And today, every single day, I have heart failures on our daily morbidity report. Yep, we're feeding cattle longer, we're putting more stress on, but but it's an issue. So I'm not. I'm not blaming breeds, but the system is what it is, and there's 
more stress than we'd like to have and how do we build cattle that can stand those, those types of pressures from the system. Yeah. And, and I want to call out the cooperation you guys have had with us where our uh, our primary work, uh, uh, what we call our heart health initiative, but to work to try to understand the genetic components of congestive heart failure, uh, working with Five Rivers, and you guys have been great at helping us identify cattle. We're getting them genotyped, we're following them through the plant, we're doing heart scores, we're doing lung scores, we're trying to trying to sort out this. So we, we appreciate you helping us identify the problem and then helping us collaborate to, to, to find solutions, most, most definitely. It's awful hard for Angus breeders to collect those phenotypes, so we're no, glad to have you guys there. And, it, and it, you know, to Key's point, it's hard where you guys have such a huge amount of the um, genetic pool out there. You go to a dead pile, I guarantee the heart failures are going to be blacks. I guarantee it. Well, guess what? Not Your whole feed yard's black. There's a lot of blacks <laughs> out there to drop from. So, yeah. But I, I do still believe it's more predominant, and I won't let you guys off the hook. No, no, and, and we don't want to be left off the hook. Whatever genetic solution or genetic part of this, we want to we want to understand. Um, as, as you guys think about, is specific whether it's heart failure, whether it's AIPs, whether it's it's respiratory disease, how. What do you guys think uh, as it relates, you know, we've, as our breeders have put more and more emphasis and have the tools to put more emphasis on growth, which more emphasis on intake, how much of, of what you think we're gonna sort out is, is directly correlated to, we're pushing biological limits here around, around intake and growth, or are we gonna find that these, do you think, are, 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 are not associated or related? characteristics. I think so far I don't follow it as closely as I once did, but I believe the research at the moment is not pointing towards strong correlations between growth take intake and heart failure or other other disease. So they appear, which is probably fortunate, they appear to be somewhat independent, right, tra uh, independent traits, and I think that's good news, right? It's not like the growth and maternal antagonistic relationship that exists. So you should be able to fine cattle that you know that can meet all of the desirable you know desirable criteria right and if, you, and if you think about about that i mean at one time you know again mike and i've been around probably too long i mean we were taught well you know you're never going to find cattle that you like their growth and performance and and you're going to like their carcass at the same time because those traits you know are a little bit negatively correlated well there's a thing called outliers Right, and that's how breeds are built, right? You find the outliers and you propagate them in great numbers, right? And over time that, you know, that improves the baseline quite a bit. I think that's what you'll find with, you know, when it gets sorted out is that you will be able to continue to make progress on carcass traits, growth traits, and also be able to improve the health situation as well. Do you find, maybe said a different way, do you find these big intake, big growth cattle are harder to manage or do you, do you have to change how you approach them at the feed yard or not so much? No, I don't think they're harder to manage. I think they're easier to manage generally. Now, we have some elevation issues and stuff in our feed yards. Our Colorado feed yards sit essentially a mile high. We, we have some interactions there that we can't fully model and describe where we'll have more digestive problems, hence, and we have bigger intake cattle those, so we'll moderate our diets, we'll feed a higher level of roughage there to, to try to offset it, but as far as managing something that eats, that, that helps you with the first big problem. Yeah. They yeah. get to go see Dr. Key if they don't eat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, 
yeah, it, it, intake is a good thing, right? And and if they're vigorous eaters, that always makes things makes things easier. But also, I think you have to remember that in a feedlot, it's everything is pen based, right? So you've got 300 head in a pen, you're going to have, you're looking at the mean intake, you're not looking at the highs and the lows, but it's pretty wild when you're able to look at some of that data, you know, the individual animal fed data, the variation potential in intake amongst cattle of the same weight and age is unbelievable, right? I mean, it really is, it's pounds per day. It's hard to believe that one animal can eat so much and others can eat so little. Right, it's a, you know tr- truly, truly is amazing. But that range tells you that you can improve things genetically, right? Because we're as feedlot guys, we're we're interested. We like them to eat, but we also they also need to have the carcass deposition. And what is interesting is that some of the really really high intake cattle don't necessarily have the best carcass digestive gain. They're right? just putting it into they, fat, they, or no? They 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 or they're just the using it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So so I, you know, it's feed conversions the most important thing. Sure. Right. And and the challenge of really for for cattle breeders, you know, across the world is, you can't really measure that very easily at the cow calf level. You don't know what your most efficient cow really is, and so, and we hardly do in the feedlot either, except on a pen basis. But if you're in the genetic business, the idea is to try to, you know, get focused on feed conversion. And that's what, you know, my message to the Angus Association was, you've got to start doing more work where you actually feed cattle out to the end in those grow safe systems. And I want the bulls selected from the, from the population that you can show me the actual feed conversion data on. You know, not an interval in time because it's at the end that matters and where everything changes. So you need to feed steers, you need to get significant numbers of progeny from your best bulls and get probably 50 head out of a bull and feed those cattle out. And now I can tell you which one I want, right? That's, yep. and, but you know what, it's, it's been difficult for, for breeders to do that and I understand why, right? right? You know, the logistics, the scope, the scale, but. The, you know the acid test of what's really the best bull has to come from progeny testing that sire yeah and most of our intake today all, nearly all of our intake today would be on yearling bulls mm-hmm. for a for a defined period of time and i, I you know i i guess i don't I, i've always believed that's probably going to be pretty highly correlated but to your point the trade of interest for you as a cattle feeder is really you know, cost feed efficiency on probably a carcass weight basis, right? And and we're probably that's a you know that's that's hard to get but to. When we've looked at that in our research programs, though, the re-ranking that occurs from the time frame where you would conventionally evaluate a bull, right, and you carry those cattle out through to the end, significant re-ranking occurs, mm. right? So. And that shouldn't be a big surprise because the last hundred days on feed is what it's all about, right? And so, but I I just think you need to do more of that kind of work, right? To truly, you know, you can figure out growth rate and you can figure out carcass, right? From your existing methodology and your systems, but you can't measure the most important thing to a cattle feeder, which is conversion, right? I'm interested in the bull that gives me the progeny with the best conversion and that's, that's been a pretty elusive target so yep. far. 
I think you very politely said you were wrong, Mark. No, I know, and, and, I, and I, I, I stand absolutely corrected. I, you will not get an argument from me. I, you know, we just had a survey that we did of cow-calf producers and cattle feeders, and it was just a reminder when we asked for traits of interest. Of course, health is number one, and feed conversion tends to be number two. When, and yet you ask cow-calf producers where they're putting selection pressure, um, That's the bottom half. It doesn't, yeah. it, you know, it, it's just not been a, a trait. One, it's not been a trait that, you know, that they maybe feel like they've, they, everyone understands the more efficient cows are the more profitable cows, but, but we don't measure individual intakes and feed efficiency on a cow basis. And so it kind of gets a little elusive, right? So uh, in time, we'll get there. Yeah. We've talked a lot about uh, the cattle and biology and those kind of things. Well, let's talk more on the marketing side and procurement side of things. How have things changed in the way you're you're procuring the cattle that you're feeding or that you're bringing into your feed yard? I, I think for us, first, you know, to drive procurements, how we're selling cattle. When I started in the industry, it was uh, open bid, bid and haggle, all kinds of games, just selling commodity cattle at the average and hoping you got them all moved as fast as you could so you could get more in. Then as we move to um, grid arrangements, it took us a while to really understand those very well and how to optimize them because we stayed in that. We were stuck in our old paradigm about feeding them 133 days and guess what? We didn't get any carcass premiums. So we believed there were no carcass premiums to be got. (laughs) Just pennies. Yeah, just pennies. And so we, (laughs) we started feeding them longer, doing things, more selection pressure opportunity. We really did move away from a more commodity um, cattle buy to, to focus. And in that transition, when we went transitioning from um, sales now to purchase, we've had some major changes in Five Rivers. So in my day as a, as a Five Rivers management training and feed yard manager, our feed yards buy all their own cattle. We essentially had license to buy cattle in anywhere in North America because we were six feed yards and we didn't walk on each other. We all had our different relationships and stuff. As we merged to Five Rivers and had at that point 10 feed yards and 11 feed yards, now 13, we started walking on each other and we'd raise each other's bids unintentionally <laughs> and stuff. And so we had the cow calf guys like that. I know that, that. that made we for good phone great. calls yeah. between the yeah. procurement yeah. teams. Yeah, and so we, we broke broke our uh, purchase up regionally by feed yard to give everybody a deal. And, th- and that was twofold, really t- stopped internal competition, but also to build deeper relationships in the deal. If, you, if you've got to focus on an area, you've got to actually know the people, know the production, know the cattle, know what's going on in the area, and, and a concerted effort to buy more cattle directly off the ranch, where it used to be a very small percentage were direct purchases today. It's, 20, 21, 22% of the cattle are direct, no no intermediary, and that's a result of that. And so we've very much changed. You know, every every operator, I've never meet, met anybody that admitted they didn't have the best calves in the world. I mean, I'm yet to meet that rancher. <laughs> and, and so, but they're not all the best. There's some, the sad fact is most of them are average, so they get bid around average. You know, there's some extremes on both sides. You never, the poor ones, never discount hard enough I'll <laughs> tell you that and so that's the deal but we work on that we've tried a lot of different you know ideas in, in market or purchasing cattle you know some types of grid arrangements but the fact your results are at the end it's just very difficult to ever get those those concepts the right way is if people really want to um, uh, take advantage of, of the 
power of their genetics, they just need to own them because my job's to buy them at a value every day, and I'm going to do the best I can on that. When when I when I first started, I mean our our my strategy was focused around buying the highest risk calves possible from a health perspective, right? Because you know because what to do with them. Be, well, be, well, I, I thought I did, <laughs> <laughs> right? I, I think I was better than the average, but maybe not that good. But certainly, you know, the, the idea, you know, so because I was veterinary focused, I thought, well, I might as well buy the, you know, the highest risk calves. And then over time, the, the, those high-risk cattle in Canada started to disappear, right? So my fun was over from you know from the you know from a competitive advantage to be point of focusing on those cattle, and then as systems get larger and you're you know and you require more and more and more cattle, you suddenly you know when you're doing a little niche thing here and a niche thing there, that's just not enough cattle. So you're kind of got to get into the you know the mainstream and kind of have to start bidding against you know outfits like Mike's here and it's not nearly as much fun you know <laughs> this you know for cow calf operators that believe that the market's not that competitive well they're sadly misinformed <laughs> right because we're at it every day you know trying to get cattle bought to fill our feed yard so it's I'd argue it's the most highly contested space there is in the livestock industry is the buying of feeder cattle so our, our overall strategies as we've grown our organizations has been to, you know, we've been down the pathway of trying to buy a, a lot of direct cattle. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but I think our total numbers of direct cattle would maybe be 10 or 15%, right? There's a whole host of reasons why that's a difficult, difficult game. But in the last 10 years, our biggest pivot has been towards beef on dairy cattle. Right, so that's the major change from from our from our perspective, as a as an organization, we're heavily focused on trying to acquire, make arrangements with dairies across Canada and the U.S., uh, own them as day olds, move them through it, move them through our system, and that way we are having a profound influence on the genetics, right, of the of the cattle, and trying to you know leverage our our knowledge of cattle production in in that way. Hasn't quite been as easy as we, as we had anticipated. It's put it this way: it's a lot more complicated than it looks on paper, <laughs> right? And there's quite a Most bit of effort effort involved in doing it, uh, but it is you know a big a big area of growth of growth for us has been you know the beyond D space in in both countries. On your beef on dairy experience, obviously those cattle tend to be a tighter and more known genetics. Um, are they easier to, to manage um, it from that regard? The variation is the variation tighter, I guess. In no, the, oddly enough, the the variation is not is not as tight as we thought it was going to be because of I the mean, beef and the dairy well, pieces coming. Yeah, together. the dairy. I mean, they're you know they they always talk about it being a fairly narrow genetic pool. Well, it is, but it remember they were never selected for beef production, right. so they were selected entirely for milk production. Right, so what you have is, is you know, very much focused on one trait, and everything else has been ignored. So we're trying to work our way through that uh, whole, you know, whole deal. But certainly, reduction in variation hasn't been as big a, you know, just Probably hasn't happened thought, that yeah. way. Yeah. And then you know, trying to get figured out what the best uh, beef sires are going to be in these in these situations. Again, 
doesn't follow an easy theory, right, in terms of, you know, what you should be doing. I'm of the opinion now that likely the best sires are going to be hybrids, right, that are a combination of, you know, the marbling traits and the growth traits, right? That's, you know, the direction that we're, you know, we're, we're leaning in strongly here. But, you know, we're, we're still trying to do the same thing. We're just trying to do it in, an, in another, you know, in another system. And we're trying, what we like about it is the, it is a birth to death thing. You know, we learned, again, you have to learn by baptism of fire. <laughs> if you're going to play this game, you actually need to own calf ranches. Not something I really wanted to do very badly, but otherwise your whole chain, it just doesn't work, right? So you've got to develop core competency in another totally different production system. So you got to get that variable out of there. And then you've got to start, you know, working your way through it. But what is nice about it is that it is standardized from the viewpoint that you're putting three-way cattle on feed, you're feeding them for a set period of time, you can manage your occupancy in the feedlot, you're not in the cash market every day, right? Those are some of the positives, but there's a lot of negatives associated with this as well. It's just, it should have been easier than this, right? <laughs> I think one of the things we don't, deal with it near as much as Key does for a lot of reasons, but we do do it. But I think You were one, Beef on Dairy back when oh, Beef yeah, on Dairy it was, wasn't cool. It wasn't yeah. cool. We yeah. did a bunch he learned of all it. his lessons yeah. early. Yeah, and, but it, I mean, honestly, it's it's interesting. The reason, reason we're not bigger players in it today is um, it's our accounting system. We recognize profit at day of purchase, and so as soon as we take the risk on, we do it. So if you have a long-term commitment three years out or whatever for calves you can't lay it off against anything so we have an uncovered obligation so it's just it's a challenge for us so we, we buy them transactionally but a production system is just something that just doesn't line up but I think one of the things that's interesting as we talk about this because we focus on the outcome traits and stuff and, and key hit on it that they're not easier I mean they're not easier than a straight Holstein no. calf we feed a lot of those and love feeding them and the issue is I think you've had industry selection and pressure over survivable calves that can survive in a calf hutch situation and basically intensively managed. They're set up for feed yard animals and stuff. You take this beef side of this thing that's not set up that way, and I think that environmental challenge is something, you know, we're focused, key point on the outcome, well, they got to get out of the calf ranch to be there, and I think that's a challenge. I'm not saying they die like flies or anything, but there's a challenge there. Well, it's an environment, yeah, to your point, yeah. we've not probably accounted for. Yeah. yeah, I have noticed the ones that don't leave the calf ranch don't arrive at the feedlot. <laughs> <laughs> don't make money I either. I figured that out, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you talk about the, the idea of the only way to capitalize on your genetic improvement is to own them all the way through, I mean, is there, obviously, the, the grid system hasn't worked well because it's complicated, but now there's the birth of verification programs and... And things like that. I mean, does that figure into to how we pass that value back or those signals back to our cow calf producers? I think it's challenging. I think the opportunities are often imagined to be greater than they really are, and so there's some disappointment. But it takes a lot of trust. I'm, we do some deals where we have long-standing arrangements with people where we can do it true up on it. But you've got to have a ton of trust, and people need to be real about the premiums and opportunities there because the truth is our base price is always too high we never buy one that's going to work <laughs> so we've got to get caught up for the uh, uh rest of it so what you know we've tried to have alliance programs and have had them for several years 
but you know, just in in context, I, I think I someone asked me, so I think I looked it up. I think in in uh, an, in alliance feedback systems across our North American system, I think we had sixty-two thousand head of cattle fed that either a portion or was owned by a primary cow calf producer, and we owned the balance of the cattle, or we and we gave them you know the data, right and but that number's been static for 20 years, yeah. right? So the program doesn't grow and it doesn't decrease in size. You know, uh, it just, I, I, it doesn't appear to be a compelling enough, uh, you know, for, you know, I go and look at the returns over that time frame. They've been better off being involved in that system than they have, would have been by selling their calves. I can pull out the data, I can show that very clearly. Their average uh, premium, uh, obtained over that you know very long interval, it's thir- you know thirty some years. It's about seventy four dollars a head, right? So it's pretty significant, right? If you if you just stayed in it, but we just can't seem to attract enough people uh, into those types of relationships because, as Mike alluded to, uh, you know they're fairly they're fairly complex, right? You get a fair bit of math involved, and you got to. You know, you've got a fair bit of data tracking, and and I think people are always disappointed. Nothing worse than finding out your cattle are right on the mean, right? <laughs> right. Horrifying to find out that they're they're slightly worse, and rarely are they better. Well, that's the old bell curve in action, right? You know, almost by definition, twelve and a half percent of the producers have superior cattle, right? To the you know to the mean, so. Um, they, it's been a, it's been difficult. If if I could have scaled that, I wouldn't be doing the beef on dairy, right? But to me, it represents an opportunity to scale and have a profound influence on the genetic base. As you guys look, maybe switching gears now, looking down, you've talked about changes that have happened in the industry. As you guys envision the feeding industry in five to ten years, what's what's going to be the biggest differences in your mind? Well, oh. I'll jump in there because Mike and I are probably not going to agree on this. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> we're, 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 we've been looking yeah. for something you guys don't yeah. agree on. Yeah. Well, I, I think that you're you're gonna you're gonna see, uh, lar- you know, feedlots are gonna get bigger and bigger at single sites, right? And there's gonna be a reshuffling of the deck as to where feedlots are located, right? Because I think roller compacted concrete, a technology changes the game in terms of where you can actually put feedlots. I mean, let's face it, people often put feedlots where they live, right? Why do you have a feedlot here? Well, because I live here, right? It's, you know, it's not a good primary siting criteria, right? You know, so... My so, wife always loves the smell of a feed yard. Come on. <laughs> yeah. And so I think you're going to see much, much larger uh, operations at fewer, fewer and fewer geographies. Right, I think that's you know one theme, and I also believe that in many situations uh, there's going to be some type of decarbonization technology attached to the feedlot, whether it's biodigesters or it's a host of other things coming down the down the pike. And I and I also think that we're on the cusp of some major technology changes that will allow for sick animal detection to change from the 40 years that, you know, that we've been riding horses, right? I think that's, I think that's about, you know, some of these things are about, you know, about to be, uh, to be big, big in terms of what the impact is going to be. 
Real quick, Key, you talk roller compacted co concrete. Can you explain that real quick for those that maybe aren't familiar with the? Yeah. So, the RCC or roller compacted concrete is composition is the same as regular concrete. It's how it's put down where all the savings are because there's you know roughly half, at least half the cost of concrete is getting it set right here. You're putting it down in a mass form and you're just compacting it with rollers. It's more and like an asphalt yeah. operation Correct. than a yeah. cement. Yeah. And so you can get the cost structure down to something that gets to be, uh, you know, still expensive, but it gets to be a consideration for, you know, for feedlots. In a lot of geographies where you really want to put one and you don't like the weather, right, you can, you know, you can, you, you can utilize this uh, technology. In our feedlots in Canada, we have converted all of them to, to RCC, and in the, in the uh, feedlot we're building currently in Nebraska, it, it'll be all on RCC as well. And then does that also change the equation on your manure value totally. and ability? Totally. It, it, I would argue that you can't have a digester unless you're on concrete. The manure, feedlot manure won't be clean enough. Right, and so the two, you know, the two things can be complement. Well, they are complementary when you put them together. Key and I'd be large energy czars if we could just get the BTU equivalent of feed yard manure extracted. Yep. A ton of feed yard yep. manure has more BTUs than a barrel of crude oil, if you can yep. believe that. Now extracting it, a little, little bit, bit challenging. How about other big changes at Five Rivers or the cattle feeding industry? I think you know the. I think Key and I would debate on the impact of roller compacted concrete, and I'm not saying it's not, but I do have some concerns. And if you're wrong, you got a big old boat anchor <laughs> out there. That what are you going to do now? The price of wrong is high. Yes. Yeah, and so I'm I'm interested, and my concern is around animal welfare, essentially, just in heat in issues and stuff. I just want to see. I'm not. I don't know. I just want to see it see that play out and stuff. And then there's some worker safety issues. If we can get rid of the horses and stuff. I'm excited about that. If you believe it's coming, I'm I'm interested. I love horses, but uh, it's a it's a piece of the equation that's very complex. And in, in roller compacted concrete, it gets even more treacherous. And so those things are my concerns. I think um, on a technology side, Key mentioned this. You know, so we've built our own software uh, for 40 years and. Five Rivers and predecessor Continental Grain. I think we had very robust software and, and systems to, to feed cattle and operate and query general data, but data analytics was something that we really struggled at for years and spent a lot of money to try to get there. And it, over the last five years, I've seen just general products come on that make that so much easier and so much more interesting. And we were finding out lots of stuff. I think Key and his team, you know, there's 50 PhDs. They got to do something. So <laughs> what the hell, torture some data. We have real jobs. We don't have time to dive in like that. But, but I think there's just a lot of interesting stuff there. And I think this AI is something I'm very interested in. And what does that, how do you deploy it? I think those things could be very um, exciting. Um, this whole waste energy deal he mentioned, I'm very excited about those opportunities. I'm hopeful that we could find a process, I think it's challenging, but I'm hopeful we could find a process to digest or convert uh, pen-packed feed yard manure, but the challenges are very real, as Key put out. It's not probable today that we do it, I'm just hopeful. We, we probably touched on this already. I want to make sure I give you guys one more chance. As you guys think of 
speaking to, to Angus breeders as they're thinking about five to ten years down the road, um, I mean, again, we've hit on a few of these topics, feed to gain or feed efficiency and, and, uh, and health. What else should be on the radar of the, of the genetic engineers in the Angus breed? It doesn't hurt to improve disposition along the way. It was funny you <laughs> said that because I was, I was deciding whether I was going to do it or not, but yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and then, but the fortunate thing again is that it is definitely possible, right? But I think that, you know, the, the cow that tries to kill you should have another career, right? I don't care how good her calf is, right? But, uh, you know, it, that's hard to do, right? And, um, it's a it's a meaningful thing at the you know at the feedlot level, and there's you know lots of data to show you that temperament and performance and stuff is related. But things like worker you know just simple things worker safety, wear and tear and equipment, just the you know that that the the stress of dealing with you know cattle that are not easy to to deal with. And you know in our alliance program, you know we've got a few herds in there that haven't been much fun over the years. Mm-hmm. Right, and you know the cowboys dread those pens coming in because, you know, and those cattle have temperament temperament issues. It's right? interesting that you say that because we talk about it a lot at the cow calf level and the labor shortages and things like that. But I don't think that cow calf producers probably think about it often and what that translates to but in the steer mates. And the, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you get sets of cattle that you know are going to be treacherous and dangerous for your people. They almost get to be a no-bid situation yeah. at any value. I mean, somebody else needs to, to deal with them. So, I mean, it's it's not something you get paid more for. It just you may not get paid at all if you have the alligators out there. They're yeah. memorable in the worst way. Yes. <laughs> the reputation cattle. Not, yeah, yeah, reputation. not all reputation cattle are mean good yeah. reputation. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, so when a calf comes in and when he's got an ear tag in it, it says, from that mean old bitch, you know, <laughs> you know you don't want that calf very bad. Right? <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm thinking, I hope they send her to town at the same time. But Take the ear tag out before you sell them. Yeah. I've got yeah. a picture of that, Mike. I kid you not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to be respectful of your guys' time. You're busy here this week. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to add? Otherwise, I have random question of the week. If you could be doing anything else besides the career that you've chosen, what would be your, like, alternate? What what else would have you done? Outside the cattle industry? Outside. The, uh, oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, maybe outside the cattle industry. I get, I get to pick. I could have like yeah, just you could have I, just you know like the oh, the, I think a professional golfer is, looks like the ideal career to me. <laughs> do you I, like to golf yes, right I now? Do. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but I do it very unprofessional. You don't get paid, you don't get paid <laughs> no, to do it. Very, very few people have offered to you know back me or anything uh-huh, like that. So it's right. a bitter disappointment. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, and you can make an adequate living. This is a socialist country. We're all getting paid the same whether we're good or not. These are a lot of rules, guys. You can yeah. tell your analytical minds. I, I'd <laughs> probably a be a bird dog trainer or something like that. But I like it. That'd be fun. Yeah. yeah. Are I you like going to answer, Mark? I don't know. I, I, I have no idea. I, you know I like cars. I like. I think I'd have a classic car dealership somewhere. But, That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Classic car auctioneer. Yeah. 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 Something I don't know like about that. an auctioneer. Just a trader. Yeah, yeah, I like it. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you. Yeah, we just so appreciate you guys. And, and Key, congratulations yep. on thank your, you. your yeah, congratulations, Key. Uh, well deserved. Uh, I'm yeah. excited. That's a I, good deal. I think you're just running out of. Uh, 
The list is pretty short. Don't give us that. The list is pretty short. Dead people, I think. Try this guy. He's <laughs> are they are they gonna roast you tonight? I have not been no. to the cattle feeders oh, hall of fame. So. Are we gonna hear some stories? I hope so. Would you like to add to it right now? Yeah. You got anything you want to add right now? Yeah, Mike yeah, is yeah, open. Yeah, be a long lineup. Don't worry. Stay away from these guys. So, well, congratulations, well deserved, and Mike, you, a, a future inductee. Uh, I have no doubt. Uh, I look forward to the day when we do this. Are you the first Canadian inductee? That's cool. Cool. Yes, that part I looked up for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah very cool. Oh, cool. Okay. Very good. Well, guys, thank you. Your insight. And, and again, pr- prior sharing with our board of directors a couple different times, yeah. breeders, been on programs uh, here. Uh, we just we just always appreciate your, your minds and your insight and your vision. And, and so thank you for thanks for joining us. I, I think in closing, the one thing I would like to say is I think you as a breed, C- Angus, CAB together, I think you guys have done fantastic things for us as an industry. Keep doing them. You're not perfect, but you're pretty damn good. <laughs> I would well, I would echo those sentiments, and it's the second time Mike and I have agreed on anything, really. <laughs> so, excellent. Well, well, we'll pass those comments along back. Our listeners will hear that. And thank you. You guys continue to keep bidding against each other on good Angus cattle. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. If you want to keep up on conversations like that one we just had, go ahead and click subscribe to never miss an episode. This has been the Angus Conversation, an Angus Journal podcast.